Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, I'm joined this week again on the podcast by Joe Ware, Senior Climate Journalist at Christian Aid, to talk about the UN Climate Change Conference COP26, which starts in Glasgow in just over a week's time. Representatives from almost every country will descend on the city for the conference, which is the biggest diplomatic event on British soil since the end of the Second World War. Their task is a huge one, to thrash out a collective response to the global climate crisis. Joe, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks very much. Good to be here. Joe, you've written about COP26 in this week's um, cover feature in the Church Times, and we, we publish a lot of other climate-related features as, as COP approaches. Um, I just wonder first, you could give us a sense of the scale of the challenge and what scientists say would be the consequences um, for not taking action. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, ultimately, we have seen climate impacts happening more and more around the world. Just looking at the news, you see cyclones, you see droughts, you see heat waves, we see all sorts of things. Sea level rise, obviously, um, one of the biggest ones for small, uh, low-lying islands. And that is at one degree Celsius of warming above pre-industrial levels. And we're currently on track uh, for about three degrees or above three degrees. Um, and that just shows you the scale of the problem if, if we kind of carry on as we are. You know, already we need, we're seeing those impacts at a very low level. And what we need to do and what the Paris Agreement, um, you know, in the Paris Agreement countries agreed to do was to limit that warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius and certainly well below two degrees. So that's the kind of area that we're, look, we're looking for. And, um, and like, like I say, the current pledges that make up the Paris Agreement don't get us there. And so the idea is that every five years, countries will strengthen those commitments and that will bend that curve from the above three degrees that we're at now down to 1.5 degrees. And, and Glasgow is basically the first sort of stepping stone along that path path where we need to see countries strengthening those commitments, um, taking more urgent action and, and bending that temperature curve. Otherwise, uh, it, it will mean uh, more devastation, particularly for the most uh, vulnerable people in the world. You write in your piece that COP meetings are quite different to, for example, you know, high profile meetings like G7 or G20 meetings. Can you give us a sense in, in what way they're different? Yes, the G7 and the G20 are, are more exclusive clubs, really, for the super rich. The G7 is the seventh biggest economies in the world, and the G20 is the 20 biggest. So if you're a small or poor country, then you don't even get a look in. You don't get invited to those, those gatherings. The joy of the, the COPs is that it's a, a truly kind of UN um, operation. So every country in the world is invited to take part. And so you have you know, nearly 200 countries all contributing, all having a voice, all having a vote on the on the conference floor. And that actually is a kind of beautiful democratic kind of approach, really. Climate change is the ultimate global problem. And so we do need a global solution. And so having kind of that breadth is really important, not least because it also gives a voice to those countries which are suffering the most. Um, and, and those people that are on the front lines that can speak to those impacts and the need for urgent action get a chance to do that. And so we've heard very powerful contributions in over the you know past few years from countries um, kind of outlining and witnessing to that to that climate crisis which can sometimes be forgotten uh, in the g7 um, where countries may not be as affected and also they've got the wealth to protect themselves uh, and adapt to the, to the to the maybe minimal climate changes that they're experiencing at the cop we get a really raw kind of you know more accurate picture of what the climate crisis is like for everybody around the around the world mm. is there ever a danger that the g7 or g20 you know richer countries 
um, do any of their own negotiations behind closed doors or come to their own agreements that they bring to something like COP and therefore it makes it difficult to listen to those voices from other places. Yes, geopolitics absolutely uh, intervenes at COPs. You know, we have to be real about that. And the big wealthy countries do bring a lot, a lot more power than those poorer ones. And so, yeah, there's there's plenty of negotiations happening, uh, kind of in the back rooms of COPs. It's often not so much actually along G7 or G20 lines. There's actually kind of set out um, negotiating blocks which are are kind of widely recognized in the UN process and have been there for, for many years. And so the, the negotiations are more about different geographic blocks and, and potentially blocks where, where people align on um, other kind of similarities. So you've got geographic ones like the Africa group is all the African countries. You've got a, a LAC group for Latin American countries. The EU, for example, is, is another negotiating block on itself. But then you also have LDCs, which is the least developed countries. So that's the very poorest countries recognized actually they've got a lot in common with each other uh, even if they may not be geographically close and so they will join together we've got aosis which is the association of small island states so these are small low-lying islands particularly vulnerable to sea level rise um, and they are united in a block as well so you have these other blocks which all kind of work together in some ways it's actually it's a good system because actually trying to negotiate 200 or you know countries is actually probably harder than if actually they do break up into bigger blocks and then they can negotiate within themselves and then they can all come together and negotiate the big blocks and so you do get you know you get you get kind of alliances that may not be the most natural in some ways you get the eu which is some of the richer countries but they're often quite progressive on climate change. And so they will sometimes like partner up with the AOSIS and an Africa group to try to counter maybe the polluters, some of the some of the more um, blocking countries that don't want to see as much uh, climate action, such as the US, Australia um, and those sort of countries. Obviously, one um, huge factor in all this is, is China. Um, just wondering, does it look like China will be represented at COP and might they block progress? China is is an interesting one. It's it's not a blocker usually. Um, it's almost so big that it kind of does its own thing in a way, and so it it, it kind of it usually surprises the world with its announcements. And so a few years ago, we were all taken aback when they announced actually they were going to probably peak their emissions by 2030 and be net zero by 2060, which is actually a lot earlier than we expected. Um, but that wasn't really kind of you know nobody expected that was coming, and so they can come sometimes ambush us with uh, with 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 that with actions. Um, they won't be represented, I don't think, by the president. Um, but that's not a snub, really. He actually hasn't travelled outside of China since the start of COVID. And he didn't even travel to another part of China where they were hosting a big UN summit on biodiversity earlier this year. So him not coming to the COP is not really him rejecting it. It's just that he, he hasn't really been travelling at all. And um, and to be honest, he probably doesn't want to come to um, a kind of COVID-ridden UK if he doesn't have to. But I think China is 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 actually doing more than its fair share in some areas, but on other areas it's it, it's 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 not doing it's not going fast enough. And obviously, the, the kind of gas price um, kind of problem that's a global energy crunch at the moment with gas prices being very high has disrupted lots of countries' energy systems. And, and obviously in China that's also an issue. But one positive thing they announced only a couple of weeks ago was that they were stopping all financing of external kind of international coal. Um, exploration and coal mining. So China is a big funder of external coal digging and they import a lot of coal and they decide they're not going to be funding it at all. 
So it's really now there's very very little international finance for for coal mining overseas, which is which is a huge win and um, and and just shows that you know that they are moving in the right direction. I think, but it's um, sometimes hard to kind of understand exactly what those moves are. But yeah, they'll certainly have a presence, and it'll be interesting to the COP is an opportunity actually to try to understand where China is moving on this issue. You've talked about geopolitics, we also and obviously political leaders are going to be out in force, but also civil society observers play a significant part in the talks. Could you give us a sense of what influence you hope they will have and what role they'll play? Yes. Uh, yes, COPs, um, unlike, again, the G7 and the G20, which is very much a closed shop for just the world leaders of those countries, um, maybe over a weekend with a kind of set-piece press conference at the end of it, this is a live negotiation between every country in the world. And so it's a much more open process. And as part of that process, um, in the kind of founding principles, really, of the UNFCCC, which is the kind of UN body that oversees the COPs, um, is a role for civil society to observe and scrutinise. Um, and I I think this is really healthy for democracy you know, we don't ultimately want just presidents and prime ministers to be cooking up a plan together um wherever we can we want to see that democratic kind of scrutiny coming from both civil society and from the media and so they play a really big part in the, in the cops and there's lots of access to so much of the talks i mean increasingly uh, host countries are quite keen to keep ngos and, and civil society out of it because it it, it, it kind of um you know they often don't want the scrutiny but compared to most other UN uh, meetings it's still extremely extremely good um, in terms of that access and it means basically there'll be there'll be a bunch of chairs at the back of every room where there's an open plenary um, discussion and there'll be for NGO observers to keep track of talks and and kind of um, yeah be able to share what's happening ultimately with their supporters with the members with the wider public and so you have a kind of vibrant sort of um, culture within the cops there's usually campaign stunts there's usually people handing out flyers there's usually people doing different ways to engage the delegates different ways to maybe put pressure on those countries which are trying to block progress and so you have quite a you know an interesting um kind of like fluid mixture of all sorts of different people all coming together i mean you also have fossil fuel interests as well you have lobbyists from you know carbon heavy industries as well trying to make their case so um so it's um so it's very vibrant in that in that way um and i think ultimately it's a good thing uh because ultimately hopefully we um can can bring the kind of you know the regular folk outside of the cop a little bit in there through those civil society organizations which obviously are supported by millions of people around the world is it possible to summarize what the main priorities will be at cop 26 and then what and what do you think a satisfactory outcome would look like yeah exactly so the the cops are generally disappointing in themselves because you kind of you see all the kind of climate change happening out, outside in the real world we have warnings from scientists and the rest of it and then you get to a cop and you expect that a reaction that will be kind of um commensurate with that demand but often it is much slower than, than we would like um what's important is about basically pushing the world in the right direction and kind of setting that trajectory um and it's often outside the cop itself in capitals in countries around the world that make domestic policy decisions where you see the acceleration uh, and, the, and the progress on the ground. But in terms of the, the kind of the big broad kind of scope of this COP, we want to see ultimately um, new emissions reductions pledged by countries. We want to keep that 1.5 goal alive. We want to keep that on the table so that um, that's still within reach and that we can continue to bend the curve. We're probably not going to get the number of new pledges that we were hoping for. Um, 
but we'll see how it goes. That's the nature of the talks is that a bit, a bit you know, countries can put pressure on each other and we can hopefully get maybe some more announcements there that we that we weren't expecting. So emissions cuts is one of the big issues and, and kind of reducing um, ultimately global heating is, is that, you know, that's that, that's that piece. There's also uh, an important part called climate finance, which is effectively rich countries admitting that they have caused this problem through their fossil fuel burning. And that's what's helped to drive their development partly. And, um, and they recognize that fact. And so they committed uh, about a decade ago that they would be giving $100 billion every year to poor countries to help them adapt to the climate change, which we've seen taking place, and also to transition away from fossil fuels and into renewables so that poorer countries who are developing don't have to follow our fossil fuel ridden development path. They can leapfrog that to go straight to renewables, which is obviously going to be much better for them in the long run and better for everybody. Um, and so that $100 billion is a really important part of the whole COP negotiation and Currently, it was due to be delivered tw by 2020 last year. Obviously, the COP was delayed. Um, and so we're very much wanting to see that delivered now. But it's still about 20 billion short, uh, despite, you know, countries, rich countries saying that they would be promising this, you know, it would be coming, don't worry. The fact it's still not been delivered is kind of embarrassing. I mean, 100 billion may sound like a lot. That's actually less than what the UK is spending on HS2 train line from London to Leeds. And so, you know, and that's that 100 billion climate finance is from all rich countries in the world together. So it's really quite embarrassing and shameful that they haven't been able to get deliver that. So that really needs to get done. And ultimately, if that is not met this, at this COP, it will be seen as a failure. So that is, I think, probably the biggest red line. The third piece is called loss and damage. This is kind of like compensation. So there are some effects of climate change which can't be simply adapted to um, because you know if your island is completely lost to the sea level rise or your farmland is lost to the desert because of rising temperatures that's not something you can just adapt, adapt to um, that is a, a permanent loss that you have suffered as not to mention obviously human lives and another you know people's entire homes in, in storms and so there is this recognition that that kind of needs to be dealt with and this is again all agreed in the Paris Agreement but there's not been a much progress on this loss and damage kind of mechanism there'd probably be a fund that would provide compensation or something like that and so that again is another big area that needs to get uh, progressed here at this COP in Glasgow so those are the three kind of big issues actually Christian Aid will be looking at but also um, there'll be a few technical things around transparency of kind of how we kind of um, make the Paris Agreement work. There'll be some stuff around carbon markets. Um, there's always kind of lots of sort of fringe issues that are all, always being negotiated at the same time. But those are the three big areas that, um, that most people will be focusing on. Just finally, you've also written in our, in our news section this week about how climate activists, many of them Christians, have been building pressure for change ahead of the talks. Um, just give us a sense of, of that. Yes, it's, it's been great to see actually the faith community coming forward and kind of using their moral voice uh, to kind of you know, remind the world this is the biggest moral issue of our time. And so we had a hand in uh, on Monday with uh, representatives from all the major faiths in the UK, handing a statement into Boris Johnson at number 10. And uh, the Church of England was represented by the Bishop of Reading. And um, yeah, that was that was great to see that kind of like national unity and ultimately climate change is one of those things that does unite people across faith across other issues across politics and so um and that's another representation of that on monday and we've also seen um we've seen kind of that happen internationally there was a big interfaith kind of um activity happening around the world with, with different people of different faith kind of making that similar kind of call to their own um world leaders we've also seen 
activists even taking the issue to um, to Lambeth Palace itself. We had some members of Christian Climate Action, who were a kind of Christian uh, section that works sometimes with Extinction Rebellion. They did a kind of uh, dramatic protest outside the gates of uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury's residence, um, where they were dressed as penitents and they were kind of covered in fake oil. And they were making the point about Church of England's uh, fossil fuel investments. And so the fact that the Church of England is profiting ultimately from climate change by investing still tens of millions of, of pounds in uh, oil giants, um, when actually there would be a powerful signal uh, if they divested from that. The reason of the investment uh, movement calls on the church particularly is that oil companies and fossil fuel companies have a lot of political power and social license and so they can fund republicans in america they can fund climate skeptic uh, politicians all over the world and it's partly because they have that kind of recognition that oh they're part of the kind of you know legitimate business of the world because you know people at the church of england are investing in them and so that's why these campaigners are targeting church of england because actually if the church of england said you know what we actually are not going to be part of this we're not going to invest and we're not going to be funding these these companies anymore more. And so it's about removing that social license from those big oil companies that create, fund and drive a lot of the kind of climate denial that happens around the world. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.